We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2 this morning, so if, you, if I didn't say that yet, you can turn there, Genesis chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look uh, for the second half of this chapter. We're going to start at verse 18 here in a few minutes, but I wanted to set the stage for what we're about to read and the significance of it. And if you are a little kid uh, who's not normally in here to hear somebody preach, thanks for being in here, and I hope that you can learn something with us, uh, that there's things that God will use uh, to teach you through what I get to read. That's the best part of the sermon when I read the Bible, so if you listen to nothing else, listen to that. Uh, but I, I trust God will help teach you as well. Um, but as long as there have been human beings, I think it's, a, it's safe to say as long as there's been human beings, there has been a painful tendency in us as the human race to either undervalue or I would even say to devalue women. I think that has been throughout human history. And we, we feel it even in kind of trivial kid type of things that we do, like on the playground as kids. I remember when little boys would say like, and girls do this in reverse, but they'd say like, boys rule, girls drool, stuff like that. Or we're trying to always pit each other against and say who's better. Uh, or I remember the movie when I was a kid that came out, The Little Rascals. I know it was an updated version. They had this He-Man woman's hater club uh, that uh, they'd have their little signal and stuff like that to get into it and, and make these oaths about how they would think about girls and not be around them, those sorts of things. And those may feel like trivial and, and comedic even, um, but if we've lived long enough, if you've lived long enough or if you're young, if you've read enough history, uh, you will see or you may have even experience that disrespect of women is not fictional and it's definitely not funny either. Like that, that it is real, uh, there's reality to it, and there's a painful reality uh, to it. And I'll, I'll be the first to acknowledge, lest some of you be nervous, I'll be the first to acknowledge that in our world today, I think there are some people who are way too quick to slap the label onto people of being sexist or being uh, just favoring of men or, or slapping labels like oppression onto things between men and, men and women. Uh, and there may be people, some even in this room who may hear this later, who would even slap that label onto me after they hear the sermon uh, that I will uh, preach today, but I do think it's undeniable that the human track record uh, has been one of undervaluing and devaluing women, generally speaking. Uh, they've been treated sometimes as inferior or treated as property to be controlled, as trophies to be shown off, as objects to be used, all these sorts of things. But uh, my hope today is that as the church, whether collectively but as individual Christians, that we will not be part of that trend. Uh, that we will be people who buck that trend, who, who see women with the value, with the dignity, with the worth uh, that God has given to them. And so that's been my prayer this morning as we come to this text, that God will use it in that way uh, to help women and men alike to see the value of women and that we'd grow in our appreciation and honoring of them. So where we've been, we've been going through Genesis slowly. We've spent several weeks in these first couple chapters of Genesis, and we're going to continue on even for uh, several more months, actually. Uh, but we're in Genesis chapter 2 this morning. I want to uh, capture where we are in the story. Uh, so the last several weeks, we've worked through Genesis 1, where it was like these six days of creation, even a seventh day where God rested, where God created the whole universe, where he created all things in the span of six days. But then we saw as we got into chapter 2, after that 
seventh day where God rests, it, it's like a rewind that we see in chapter two and a zooming in on day six. And in particular, the part of day six where God created human beings. That was the day he created them on. And we've seen even more recently, the last week or two, we saw Pastor Larry preached from the beginning of this section about how God created the man and placed him in the garden, right? To work it and to keep it. And then Adam Pennard preached for us last week the, the verses immediately preceding this. He preached from verses 16 and 17 about how God had given moral command uh, to this first man, even before Eve existed, even before a woman was created. But now we're going to read Moses' record, the author of this. We're going to read his record of how God created the first woman, uh, how, how God made her. And this is going to be kind of like partway through day six. We're going to get a little glimpse into part of day six of creation once again. I wanted to acknowledge before I read this, this would have been an anomaly in most ancient creation stories. They would have had stories about how humans came to be or how the first man came to be, but not many of them actually had a record of how, in a distinct way, the woman would have been created. But I think God has this story in here because even the, the Israelite people who were the recipients of this as they'd been freed from Exodus, even their generation, like every culture, every generation, struggled at times to value women rightly. And God wanted to remind them how he had created the very first woman so that they would regain this sense of the female's dignity, significance, and value. And so God is going to peel back the curtain back in time to how he created this very first woman. So I'm going to read from verse 18 of Genesis 2 down through verse 23. And then next week we'll finish out the chapter and talk more in detail about verses 24 and 25. But follow along with me or listen in. Uh, if, if kids, if you're not old enough to read yet or know what those letters mean, just listen in. I'm going to read from verse 18 down through 23, this spirit-inspired record of the creation of the woman. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of it. I want to summarize this message with this sentence. Uh, and then we'll walk back through this text and what I mean by this statement. That This is what I would want you to walk away with. Youngest, oldest, like men and women both. Is that women are to be valued as indispensable and complementary partners alongside men in the fulfillment of God's commission. Uh, that women are to be valued as indispensable and complementary. I know those are big words. We'll talk about those. Indispensable and complementary partners alongside men in the fulfillment of God's commission. So I want to start with this word indispensable that I use to try to, and I want to show you from the text what I mean by this, that women are indispensable partners with men in the fulfillment of God's 
Commission. This text that I got to read this morning, some of us may have heard it many times, and I think sometimes the more familiar with, we are with it, the more we've heard it, we could lose how significantly different verse 18 is from everything that's come before it, uh, where God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. If you rewind and read back through Genesis 1, there have been numerous occasions where God has said, it is good, 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 it is very good, right? And so when we read this, or people who would have heard it read, it's like a record scratch, like I won't even try to mimic a record scratch, you can fill that in in your head, like just a halt, like whoa, this is different, uh, not good, God's saying something not good. In chapter 1, he had said six times different things that he assessed as good, light, land, seas, trees, sun, moon, fish, birds, animals. All he said was good. He had even said at the end of chapter 1, verse 31, he had said that his creation was very good, right? But remember, that was when men and women, that was the end of day 6. When man and woman were together, it was when he had said things were very good. But here, in the middle of day 6, as we've rewound a bit, he says something is not good. And it's intended to, to make us pay attention. What is it that's not good? And Moses quickly records God's words for us to know what is not good is that the man is alone. That's what he says is not good amongst his creation at that point. That it is not good that man is alone. And we know from chapter 1 that God, Adam had been made in God's image, right? There was, there was a capacity God had given to him as an image bearer who was supposed to be like God. There was this capacity he had given him right from the start to actually enjoy, I would say it this way, to enjoy community among equals. The image of God means much more than that, but that's part of it, is that Adam had this ability to enjoy community with peers, with equals, because that's what Father, Son, and Spirit have always done for eternity, right? So he had this capacity to relate to, to equals, to know them deeply, but at this point, prior to the creation of woman, he's deeply lacking, right? He's lacking a peer. He's lacking a friend. He's lacking a companion. He's lacking a society to live in. He is alone. I want to clarify something too, is that what God says is not good is not that Adam per se is wifeless, right? But it's a broader problem than that. It's not just he doesn't have a wife yet, but that he is alone, period. There's not any human being at all for him to fellowship, not even a friend, let alone a spouse. And so he says, God's assessment, which is always true, is it's not good that man should be alone, Right? And God commits, I will make a helper then that is fit for him. But God, I would note in the story, God doesn't just immediately jump to fix it. Right? Like there's, some, there's an in-between. When God says that, I will make a helper. And then when he actually does it, there's this little process that happens in between. Right? This, this parading of animals of sorts. So it's not set as a parade, but he brings all the animals to Adam. And I think, and I want to explain this. God did this before he creates the woman, before he gives her to the man. He did this whole process with the animals, I think, to help Adam actually feel his lack, to actually make him know it, 
and to feel it. Because God could have assessed that it's not good that he's alone. Boom, Adam, here you go. Uh, He could have done that. But what he does, he brings, verse 19, like he brings all the animals uh, that are not in the water, basically. All the the birds and all the land animals, he brings them to Adam. It's kind of like a precursor to Noah later on, right? But he brings all these animals to him. And part of what he's doing is, is giving Adam this first opportunity, even before Eve comes along, he's giving him an opportunity to exercise dominion. He's giving him a, a chance to exercise authority by naming the animals, right? Did you catch that? That he brings them to Adam and Adam gets this privilege of naming the animals in verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and birds and to every beast, Right? If you remember back in chapter one, God had been the one naming things, right? That was, that was part of his godness, part of his role and his authority as a creator was to give names to things like day and night and heaven and the earth and the seas. God was the one naming things and had authority, but here it's like he entrusts this authority to Adam to, to name all of these animals. It's a, a, a powerful, interesting, fascinating process that that would have been like, I think. But I think this, this parading of the animals um, before Adam, I think it was intended to do a deeper work in Adam's heart, like to do work inside of him. Not just to go through this mechanics of naming things and having classifications of animals, things like that, um, but that he was wanting to do something internally to Adam to make him actually feel his lack to feel his aloneness, I think is what God was wanting to do. And I'm not just saying that. It's not just conjecture. If you look at the end of verse 20, the, the narrator says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. It kind of begs the question is who was looking, right? Who was not finding? Uh, was it God not finding or was it Adam not finding? Uh, I, it's kind of both. God knows what he's going to do though, but Adam is not finding a helper. Adam is not fi- finding a friend, a mate, a companion. Uh, he is not finding it. And if that's not persuasive to you that I think uh, God was trying to help Adam feel something, I would point you down to verse 23. And when Adam finally speaks, when the, the woman has been brought to him, notice how he starts. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, right? And if women think men are impatient, I think it could be true this is day one of human existence right like part way through a day and I was like oh at last like at last this woman is here Uh, but that statement at last I think shows us Adam knew even before he was put to sleep I am lacking like I've seen companionship in these animals in some form I've seen a male and a female he would have seen all of these coming by but for himself he has known I don't have that and I long for that. Like it's not, I think Adam could have said, it's not good for me to be alone, right? And I'll just say pastorally a note on this is that sometimes God lets us feel our lack, right? In order to increase our thankfulness for his provision, right? Like he didn't have to make Adam feel his lack. He could have just boom, provided, right? But he, he let him go through this process of feeling a void, so that when God provided it, there was a deeper thankfulness. There was an, an ecstasy, a, a joy that was increased because he had felt his lack, right? We don't appreciate wealth until we've experienced want, 
And we don't experience or appreciate fullness until we've experienced emptiness, right? We don't appreciate community until we have felt our aloneness. And so God, God sometimes, just like he does here with the first man, lets us feel our lack in order to grow our thankfulness. But what I want to point out about the indispensable, like the nature of the woman, she has to be part of fulfilling the commission that God gives to them together. Uh, I want to point out something in these first two chapters that I think we could easily miss is the sequencing of God giving a moral command. He gave a moral command to Adam about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Before Eve ever even existed. Like he gave a moral command just to the man. But that commissioning that be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. God gave that back in chapter one to both of them right? This commission to be fruitful, to multiply, to represent him all over the world was given to Adam and Eve both, right? That commission was not in the records we have here just given to the man alone, but it was given to man and woman together. If you look back in verse 28 of chapter 1, it says this, that God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish and the birds and every living thing. So God gave this commission to man and woman together. He didn't give it to Adam and then to pass along to Eve like he did with the moral command about the tree. He gave them this commission together. And so from the beginning of this record of human existence, we see that women are indispensable to fulfilling the commission of God. And it's more, please hear me out on this, it is more the value of women, the indispensability of women, and this should go without saying, but their value is about far more than just reproduction. It's it's not just be fruitful, multiply, and Adam couldn't do that on his own, so he needs a woman. That is true. But the command to to have rule spread out all over the earth, to, to not just be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, but to subdue it and have dominion over it, that was given to man and woman together. That there was not a real capacity to truly adequately do that and spread the rule of God all over the world without men and women together. And women have great value, great usefulness in God's world. No matter what men may be tempted to think, right? Women have inclination. They have insights, dispositions, skills, strengths that are of vital importance at all sorts of levels. At societal levels, at family levels, at church levels. There is great value. There is an indispensability. If humanity is going to live the right way, represent God rightly in the world, men and women are both of vital importance they're indispensable and I would just ask you men and women in the room both do you actually believe that like do you believe that women are an indispensable part of fulfilling the commission that God's given us as humans but also as Christians like do you believe that and if you do I would ask you a follow-up do you show that you believe that and how you speak about women, how you treat women, how you think, how you ask them questions, how you invite input, those sorts of things. Do you show by your actions, by your words, that you believe women are an indispensable part of fulfilling the commission of God? A few small things I would note that we're trying to do as a church to grow in this. Uh, 
and, and I think we do well at this, don't hear me saying this, but that we can grow, I think, and seeing the value of women even within the church and the service of the church body. Two things I would note. One is as we're reorganizing our community groups, we're trying to identify, we're still going to have a male community group leader uh, who, who gives oversight to that group, but we're also trying to identify as God provides a woman to serve in each group. I, we could not think of a great name for this, but as a woman, a women's care leader, like a lady amongst that group that could help organize and facilitate care for the women in that group to make sure that they're being looked out for and cared for and discipled and invested in some ways that men may not be able to see exactly. So we're trying to do that. And I think that'll be of great value in our church. And one thing we're trying to do as well, and we're going to even try to implement this in the weeks to come, and this is a very small thing, but I think it could have significance, is that even in our public gatherings, we're gonna, we used to do this for a little while and then we got away from it with COVID, but we're going to even start to have our sisters who are members of the church pray publicly. And I know that may open a big can for some people. I think 1 Corinthians 11, if you read that chapter, shows that even early churches had women pray in the gathering of God's people. And so that's one small thing we're going to try to do. We have sisters in the Lord who read texts of scripture, but we never in recent years have been having a female voice pray congregationally and publicly. And so we'd like to do that again, to show the value, show the worth of our sisters in Christ. And so those are just a few small things. Um, But Women, first point, you see in the creation narrative, are indispensable to fulfilling the Great Commission, to fulfilling this initial commission of being fruitful, multiplying, subduing the earth, having dominion, but uh, they are essential. They are uh, indispensable in fulfilling the Great Commission of making disciples of all nations. The second point I want to make is this, is that, and hear me on this, to say that women are indispensable to fulfilling the commission that God has given us does not mean that they are interchangeable with men, right? That women are indispensable to fulfilling the commission of God, but they are not, and sisters, you are not interchangeable with men, and we are not interchangeable with you, right? And so this is where this word complementary comes in, that, that females, that women are indispensable and complementary partners with men in the fulfilling of the commission of God. If you don't know the word complementary, uh, I try to pronounce it carefully, complementary, not complementary. If there was an I as the second vowel in the word complementary, we'd be talking about ladies are just these nice compliment givers. Like they're always just going to tell you nice things about yourself. And that may be. Many of you are that way. Many of you are complementary. Uh, but complementary with the E second. I, I looked up the definition in Oxford Dictionary in honor of Ben. Uh, Oxford Dictionary uh, complementary define, is defined this way, the English word we use, that it means combining in such a way as to enhance or emphasize the qualities of each other or another. Uh, that, that there's a combining of two things in such a way that they enhance each other that, or that they uh, emphasize qualities of each other that they either lack or don't have in the same measure, that they uh, enhance or emphasize qualities of each other. Uh, in art class, when you're little kids, you learn about complementary colors like purple and yellow, right? I got a fist pump from the art teacher, so I know I'm doing this right. Uh, You got like purple and yellow, or you have blue and orange, right? Or red and green. You have these colors that are like opposites of each other, but they they complement each other, right? Uh, Or think of music. Like we have different instruments, 
but they play together. And they're not playing the exact same things. They're different notes that aren't exactly the same, but when you put them together, it makes a richer, fuller sound, right? There's a deeper beauty to it than if you heard them individually or if they just were on the same plane, right? Or if you have five pianos, it's not gonna sound the same as a piano and strings or, or drums or these sorts of things. There's a complementary nature to many things in life where there's a sameness in some ways, but there's difference. There's a sameness, but there's a distinction as well. And I think you see right here at the very beginning both of these things, a sameness between men and women, but you see distinction in men and women as well. I want to point out a couple of these things uh, that some of you may have noted before, but I just want to make sure we see them here in God's record of us. Because we're not just these people, creatures who just get to see things about ourselves and determine who we are. We need to see how God has made us uh, from the very beginning. I want to show you uh, sameness between men and women, but difference between men and women that makes us complementary. So how, where do we see sameness here in this text in these early chapters of Genesis? Well, if you first, like this precedes what we read this morning. But if you go back to chapter 1, there's a very fundamental statement given in verse 26 and following where God creates men and women both in his image, right? Where male and female, he created them both in his image. No distinction of the, the fullness of the image of God that was in men and women. That is a hugely significant thing that gets said first in the Bible about men and women, that they are the same, that they have uh, the image of God within both of us, right? So that is a piece of evidence, number one, of sameness between men and women. I think in our text today, even the start of it, verse 18, is a piece of evidence where he says, it is not good good that the man should be alone, right? Uh, that shows something about the sameness of him and this eventual creature, this, this woman that God would bring to him, right? Because there was already a whole host of creatures who were different from Adam, right? So he wasn't alone in that sense of having different types of beings around. What he, where the way he was alone was having someone that was the same as him, right? A, a equal to him, a, a fellow human being. Right? So that shows sameness. Another piece that shows the sameness of the man and woman is how God creates Eve. He makes her out of what? Out of what? A rib. There you go. Thanks, Jordan. He makes her out of the rib. That is not accidental, right? And that sticks out as fundamentally different from every other thing, every other living creature that God had made thus far, right? He had made from the ground. Right? We even see that in today's text, right? Like the start of 19. And we know from earlier in chapter 2, he had made Adam from the dust of the ground. But verse 19 even says of these animals, these beasts and birds, he says, out of the ground the Lord God had formed them. Right? So God had made the stuff they'd been made out of was out of the ground. But when it comes time to make the woman, God could have made her out of the ground, just like he did Adam, right? But he takes an actual piece of Adam's flesh. And I think this really happened, uh, lest there be any mystery, that he actually takes part of Adam's flesh and turns that into the woman. That's what he uses to build the woman. There's a sameness that's supposed to be communicated in that, of, of she is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, right? There's a sameness about them as human beings. And that's the last piece of evidence, is verse 23, is Adam's response. He, he says, this at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and even the name that he gives to her is that she comes from the man, right? That, that there is a sameness about them. But there is difference here at the beginning as well, 
Uh, I want to point out some distinction between the man and the woman as well that we might miss. Uh, some things God is, is showing us right from the beginning that show difference, that make us complementary. few things. One, I would note, kind of the obvious, that God makes the man and the woman sequentially, not simultaneously. Right? Like he makes them in an order. Like he makes the man first, and then later in that same day, uh, day six, he creates the woman. So that's significant, that he creates them sequentially, not simultaneously. He could have made them simultaneously, right? He could have formed them both from the dust of the ground and simultaneously breathed life into both of them, but he didn't. He, he created them with an order. And then when he actually makes this uh, second human being, God doesn't just make a clone of Adam, right? He doesn't just make another man, right? He could have done that. Like he could have provided him with a friend as as the first being that was another male. But rather than making a clone or another man, God makes a creature that is different. God creates a woman, right? A distinctly different creature that has sameness nonetheless, but he creates a different creature, a woman, few other things that show distinction. One is just, I would say it this way, shorthand, is that the woman is created from the man and for the man. That's language that is in this text, that, that she's created from his rib. She, even, she was taken out of man at the end of the text, and she was created for Adam. She was made as a helper fit for him. Right? And there's much that could be said about this word helper and what that means. I think we can uh, grossly misunderstand that. Uh, but I would just note this, like that title of her being a helper is not some indicator of a less than status, but of an essential status, right? Uh, that, that God uh, is giving her as a helper to actually enable Adam and then her together to do the things that he could not do by himself. There's an essential nature in that, not just a, not a less than status. So she was created from the man and for the man. And then last thing I would note that shows some distinction is that Note who names her woman. I don't know if you've noticed this before. Like, who names her woman is Adam, right? God doesn't give her the name. Like, if you look in verse 23, then the man said, this at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So even this dear creature that God creates and brings to Adam God has Adam name her, right? That if, if naming of the animals conveyed something of authority, something of distinction between him and those animals, I think it says something here. And we should not read too much into this, uh, but we should not read things out of it either. God gave Adam the responsibility and the privilege even of naming her woman. And so there's distinction between these two creatures, right? And it is it's vitally important that God gives us a glimpse of this before sin enters the picture, right? Of sameness and distinction. He gives us a picture of this before sin enters the picture because it is becoming increasingly common. There's always been an argument that people would make, but it's becoming more and more common to argue that differences in gender and even differences of roles that men and women have within the family or within the church, that those are a product of the fall. That they are things that sin brought into the picture, 
And that now that Jesus has come, those things are to be redeemed. They're to be reversed. Like they think, some argue that roles and distinctions are part of the curse that has been laid on humanity that needs to get now peeled back. But I would point out to them, I would point out to you if you you believe that or attempted to believe that, God is giving us a picture of maleness and femaleness, man and woman here before sin even exists. And even here you see sameness and distinction. You see indispensability, right? But you see complementarity both. And sin, we'll see in the chapters that come, it complicates the distinctions between men and women, but it does not create them, right? And so we ought to not just think we can dismiss them or or do away with them or push them back. We need to embrace how God has made us, right? So these these themes, I want to share this. These themes that start right here at the very beginning of men and women, of uh, women as being indispensable in the world and the fulfilling of God's commission and then the complementarity between men and women. They start here, but they continue through the whole Bible. Like from day one onward, you see both of these things, indispensability of women Uh, But you also see complementarity of men and women. I want to briefly, it'll be kind of like flyover, but I want to mention a few things that show that these weren't just Garden of Eden things that then just kind of get chucked, uh, but they're things that God was trying to teach and show throughout time, even up to today. So indispensability, a couple things, the indispensability of women. I'll point out a few things that you see as you go through the scriptures. You see again and again and again that women are regularly commended for their vital contributions to the mission of God and to the people of God. This is true in ancient Israel. It is true in the church age, certainly. Uh, Time would not allow us, but you can think of examples, probably, uh, but I'll just mention a few. As you read through the scriptures, you see women like Deborah. You see women like Ruth, like Esther, uh, some of these ladies. You see uh, unspoken volumes of mothers who are raising sons and daughters in ancient Israel and who in the New Testament era are doing the same, right? You see as Jesus comes onto the scene, right? Read, about, read the records of his life, especially Luke's record. He'll regularly mention the importance of women in the ministry of Jesus, that Jesus was teaching women, that they were his disciples, that they would uh, travel with him, they would learn from him, they would serve him. There, even in how our Lord treated women, uh, there is an indispensability to them. You, when you get to the New Testament letters, you see even the Apostle Paul who gets a bad rap amongst some people say he is regularly commending females, right? Like think of ladies like Lois and Eunice and Phoebe and Priscilla, these people he's commending, these ladies he's commending for their service, for the, their examples. He, even that same Paul, gives commands in Titus 2 for women within the church to teach other women. Like he, He's not just trying to squash. He, he's highlighting, he's commending, he's even entrusting certain vital ministries of the church to sisters in the Lord. And so there's this indispensability. There's a beautiful statement even that Paul himself wrote that I I love in 1 Corinthians 11 about this indispensability, this value of men and women together. He said this, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, hear this though, nor man of woman, for as woman, referring back to Genesis 2, as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And so in Paul's mind, it was of vital importance that every person, men and women, know the vital significance of both men and women. We are both indispensable to the commission, fulfilling the commission of God. So you see that theme run through Scripture. But you also see complementarity run through Scripture. The, the sameness and distinction of men and women. 
Let's point out a few things, and then I want to get to the part I'm most excited about from this text. But you see complementarity run throughout Scripture, sameness and distinction. You see it in descriptions and commands related to the family, right? Uh, There's much that could be said about this, but when you get to the New Testament, you get statements, and then post-resurrection of Jesus, right? Like New Testament era, you get statements by the Apostle Paul where he says the husband in a marriage is the head of the wife, right? Uh, You read 1 Corinthians 11. You read Ephesians 5. There's a headship of a man within marriage that is not entrusted to the woman, right? So there's a complementary nature of relationship there. And he tells husbands to love their wives in certain ways that he doesn't tell wives to love their husbands, right? And vice versa. He tells wives, he says, to submit to their husbands, a a hot-button issue today that uh, we sometimes want to sidestep. But Paul is telling them that. He's commanding wives to relate to their husbands in particular ways that he doesn't, per se, tell husbands to relate to them. And you see, even within the church, instructions and things that are given to churches, even churches like ours, uh, you see in the kingdom of God, this new covenant people, there's still distinction even within the household of God and how men and women are to operate. Think about this. Jesus... uh, he loved women. Like he, he would teach them. He would invest in them. They, they would serve him. When it came time to choose apostles, to a person he picks men, right? And if anyone was willing to push against cultural norms, it was Jesus. But Jesus knew there was something in the created order, something about authority that he wanted to give to qualified men within his kingdom, within his church, right? And even the apostle Paul, when he's writing to churches or to church leaders, he goes back to this very text, Genesis 2. And when he's writing the letter we call 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, he says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, Rather, she is to remain quiet. And much could be said about what that means to be quiet. But I I want you to see how he grounds that. Paul doesn't say, because I don't like women. Or because women aren't as educated as men. They just need more opportunity. Or something like that. He He goes back to Genesis 2, before sin, and says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. There's that sequential, not simultaneous, was huge in the mind of Paul. And so there in, within the family, within the church, there's these complementary roles you see throughout time that carry from Genesis forward. Some people with these statements about complementarity in the family and within the church get embarrassed of those things. They get kind of skittish, like, oh, can we not talk about that part of the Bible? Can we just kind of dance around this? May we not be people who treat those texts that way, where we're embarrassed of them or where we think of them as something to dance around. But may we also not use them as some, especially men can be tempted to do, to use these texts as weapons or excuses to justify mistreatment of women or control of women. They're they're not to be avoided, but they're also not to be weaponized either. But rather those texts and these principles that start here in Genesis 2, they're to guide us into living in accordance with how God made us like distinctly uh, with sameness but distinction as men and women. I wanted to read uh, just a short part from our statement of faith that I think beautifully sums this up. Uh, And if you're not familiar with it, we have this as our statement of faith as well as a church family, but this is from our denomination as a whole. I love how the authors wrote this, trying to, to summarize some of what we even see here in Genesis 2. They said, although the fall distorts and damages God's design for gender and its expression, 
these remain part of the beauty of God's created order. Men and women reflect and represent God in distinct and complementary ways. And these differences are to be honored and celebrated in all dimensions of life. To deny or seek to remove these differences is to distort a fundamental way in which we glorify God as male and female. I think as much as said, uh, that is strong, solid, uh, commendable in that statement. I want to end with this. If, if I've not persuaded you, if this text hasn't persuaded you uh, to value women, I want to share one last thing uh, that I think, if nothing else, could should persuade you uh, to value women, to value our sisters, uh, would be this. Is that one of the primary images that God uses in the Bible to describe the people he loves, the, the people that he prizes, is a bride, right? A woman. That is a predominant, a major image that God uses throughout time to describe his people, the ones that he loves. He doesn't picture his people as this like strong, strapping, impressive man, right? But as a bride, as a woman uh, that he saves and that, that he deeply loves, right? And I mention that because I think right here in this text that we read this morning, you get the beginning of that metaphor, like you get the beginning of that picture right here at the very beginning, even before sin ever enters the picture. God knows full well what he's going to do eventually in the sending of Jesus, right? And what he's going to do in the saving of his people. And I want to connect a dot for you that maybe you haven't connected before even in reading this story that I think is powerful and on purpose here in this text. Because this text, some of us have grown up hearing it like, We've just heard it since as long as we can remember. It feels strange to some people. Like if they hear it for the first time, like what is this deal with him putting Adam to sleep and like taking a rib? Like is this like ancient anesthesia he's got going on and surgery and like what is going on? Why is God doing that? Like why didn't he just make them? Like why he could speak. Why didn't he just like make them uh, and, and just make them uh, stand up and see each other and live happily ever after? Why did God do it this way? I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. But see if this sounds familiar as you contemplate what God eventually does in the sending of Jesus. See if this sounds familiar from this text. So in Genesis 2, you have one man, right, who's sinless, right, who's fellowshipping with God, right, in perfect union with him, but he's alone in it, right? He's alone in it. He's the only one in fellowship with his creator, uh, with his God, but he has a longing to be joined by others, right? Like he has this longing to have companionship, to have other people who enjoy his heavenly father with him. And then God puts him into a deep sleep, right? And he breaks his body, right? And in the breaking of that body, he builds a bride, right? And then this man awakens and this bride is presented to him, and he rejoices, right? Does that sound familiar to you? Because uh, I don't know how many times I've read this and missed it. But if you're still struggling to connect the dot, I want to make it explicit and connect it. Because this story that you see between Adam and Eve, 
comes true in an even greater measure with Jesus and his bride, right? Because when, when Jesus came into the world, he's God the Son, but he enters into the world as one man, right? He's even called the second Adam in the New Testament. He enters the world as one man, and he's sinless, right? He's not disobedient. He's not rejecting God. He's just like Adam was here. He, he's this perfect man, this obedient man. He's in perfect fellowship with God. Like the entirety of his life here on earth, he's in perfect fellowship with God, perfectly obeying him, not eating of the trees he shouldn't eat of, right? He, he's doing what God calls him to do. But Jesus was alone in that, wasn't he? Like we don't join him in that. Like we reject God. But Jesus was alone in that fellowship with God. But Jesus had a longing within him for others to join him, right? To actually have brothers and sisters, to actually have companions, to actually have a bride that could be his. But there's a huge difference between his situation and Adam's, right? Adam just, there was nobody else, right? (laughs) That person actually had to be made. For us, we already existed, but we were enemies. So God didn't need to just make something, create something. He had to redeem something. He had to buy people back if, if Jesus was going to be joined, right? We had rebelled, not just not existed. And so to do that, to fulfill that desire of Christ and actually give him companions, to provide a bride for him, God put Christ at the cross into a deep sleep, right? And I'm not talking like a physical sleep. He put Christ to death, right? Like Adam, we don't know how long he was asleep, but he was just essentially taking a glorified nap. Jesus sleeps the sleep of death. He is put to death on the cross in our place, and his body is broken, right? He even literally has his side pierced with a sword, and out come blood and water. And Christ was put to death in our place. He, He suffered in our place so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be part of of this bride, we might be made into new people, right? So God puts him to sleep, breaks his body, and the breaking of his body, he begins building a bride, right? He begins saving people, he begins changing people, and some of us are part of that bride, and then he makes Christ awaken, right? He wakes him back up, He, he raises him up from the dead, And when Jesus awakes, he has this joy because he knows his work is complete. Like he he knows that these people have now been purchased. These people have now been uh, made part in eternity of the family of God. And there is a joy that was within Jesus' heart when he was raised that far surpassed, I think, Adam's ecstasy here in the Garden of Eden. Because he knew not just now I have a singular bride, but I have a bride comprised of people from all nations and all times, everyone who will bow their knee to me in faith are part of my bride. And I want to offer to you this morning, many of us in this room, we have become part of that bride that was made from the body, broken body of Christ. But if you're still today an enemy of God, if you still are dead in your sin and running away from him, what he offers to you is that you can be part of this bride. You can be part of this companion of Jesus that will live with him resurrected for all eternity if you will turn from your sin. If you will trust that his brokenness there on the cross is your source of forgiveness. 
If you place your trust in him and ask for forgiveness, he will gladly give it to you and he will rejoice over you. He will sing over you uh, a song that far surpasses Adam's here. This is a beautiful picture uh, of the work of God in saving his bride right here in Genesis 2. God knew what he was going to do, right? He doesn't get to Genesis 3 and figure like, oh no, what do I need to do? Genesis 2, he's given a picture of a man who sleeps, body broken, a bride created and joined with him uh, to live in fellowship together. And that is what we have become part of. And I want to say this last. If God uses the image of a woman, if God uses the image of a bride to depict his people that he so deeply loves and prizes, then ought we not, as his creatures, whether we're men or women, ought we not to highly esteem the women in our lives, right, and the women in our church, and view them as the indispensable complementary partners that they are.